Take your copy of God's Word today, open it again to the epistle to the Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 10 this morning. As uh, we look at uh, kind of part two, uh, the author of Hebrews' description, introduction of Jesus, the great high priest. This text naturally follows right on the heels of the end of chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, which we looked at together last Sunday morning. Fundamentals are important. It was 1986, Game 6 of the World Series, Mets and the Red Sox. I believe it was in the 10th inning. The game was tied. The Mets had a runner in scoring position standing on third base, and one of their players came up to bat. The pitch came, the batter swung, and he hit an easy-to-field dribbler down the first baseline. Red Sox first baseman Bill Buckner, standing 10 or 12 feet behind first base, stoops to field the ball, and this all-star baseball player misses the catch, which would have sealed the out and sealed the game or taken it to the next inning for the Red Sox. But the ball dribbled under his glove between his legs. And the Buckner blunder lives to this day in infamy. Now, the Mets would go on to win the World Series in Game 7, but it was Buckner's blunder that everybody remembers the 1986 World Series for. Fundamentals. Throw ball, hit ball, catch ball. That's baseball. And Bill Buckner failed to catch the ball. Fundamentals are so important. It's fundamentals, win and lose games. In the first century church, 2,000 years ago, there were Jewish believers in Jesus, Jewish converts to Christianity. And they weren't really leaving their Jewish faith. They were just embracing Jesus as the Messiah they had long waited for. But they were oftentimes, at least it seems from the context of the letter to the Hebrews, they were tempted to leave the church and to leave the the Christian faith in order to return to the fundamentals of their previous Jewish temple worship. They're going to leave the fundamentals of Christianity to go back to what they preferred, to what seemed to make more sense to them. And so the author of Hebrews is writing to these Jewish Christians in the first century to remind them to remember the fundamentals of their faith, not to neglect the fundamentals, most especially throughout the whole course of Hebrews, this one fundamental truth that Jesus is greater than everything. Jesus is greater than everything. We were introduced to Jesus, the great high priest, at the end of chapter 4 last week, and we continue with that same idea this week. But what the author of Hebrews expands upon that idea with for us this week is this fundamental truth, that Jesus is the strong, eternal, obedient priest that we all need. Jesus is the strong, eternal, and obedient priest that we all need. This fundamental truth must not be forgotten by the church, by Christians, irrespective of their background. The author of Hebrews wants us to know and wants his readers to know. And so we turn to the text this morning, Hebrews 5, verses 1 through 10. Uh, As you're comfortably able, would you stand with me as we honor God by reading his word? The author of Hebrews continues. He says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. 
Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him, who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Jesus is the strong eternal, obedient priest that we all need. And as the author of Hebrews describes this, we are reminded of three fundamental realities that spring from this truth. Fundamental reality number one, we are weak, but he is strong. We are weak, but Christ is strong. Verses 1 through 4 share this with us as the author of Hebrews starts to relate to the people that he's writing to about the helpfulness of human priests. Human priests in the Jewish temple worship system were helpful. They represented the people of Israel to God. And as one of the people, they themselves also had to offer sacrifices for, they offered sacrifices and sins, sacrifices for sins, I'll get my words out this morning, and gifts of devotion to God on behalf of the people. They are helpful in this way. Further, they are helpful in that they are able to sympathize with the people. They are human beings too. They know what it is to be human. They, they know what it is to struggle in a world that is beset by sin. And so they can, they can be patient and they can deal gently, as the author of Hebrews says, with those in the faith who are ignorant, who still have learning to do, who are wayward, who are wanting to walk away. They can relate well to them, in part because they are beset by sins too. As spiritual leaders, we can help those who are around us to grow in repentance, grow in maturity in Christ, because we know what it is to repent. We know what it is to grow. Priests are helpful, but priests are ultimately weak. They are weak because they are sinners, the author of Hebrews says. They can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward because they themselves are beset with weakness. This is a kind of a good thing of human priests, but it's not a good thing all the time. Verse 3 says, because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And so just as much as a human priest is able to identify with the weaknesses of human beings, he also has failings himself. He is just as prone to sin, just as guilty of sin, just as needy for salvation as they are. Priests, human priests are weak because they're merely human. But as we saw last week, and we're reminded here again in our text this morning, Christ is divine. So where human priests are weak, the, uh, uh, the great high priest Jesus is strong. Human priests are sinful, but Christ is sinless. We were reminded of that last week in verse 15 of chapter 4. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every, way, in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. There were some priests who took advantage of their status in society and maybe their family wealth and other things, and they bought their way into the priesthood. Jesus is not a priest like that. Jesus is not a priest who calls himself or makes himself a priest, but he is, as the author of Hebrews says, one who is called by God. 
And so in this way, Jesus, our great high priest, the one who goes between us and God, who represents us to God the Father and who, who uh, mediates grace from God to us, Jesus, as the divine human priest, fully God, fully man, embodies all of the strength of the priesthood without any of the weaknesses of the priests. We are weak, but he is strong. Dear friend, if you are relying on human priests, on human representatives of religion to bring you to God, you have fundamentally misunderstood God's holiness, and you have fundamentally overestimated a human priest's ability to bring you to God. There is one priest who is strong where we are weak, and it is Jesus. We are weak, but he is strong. He fails in no way. He is the only one that is capable, that is righteous enough to bring us to God without any failing on his own. Fundamental reality number one, we are weak, but Christ is strong. Fundamental reality number two comes to us in verses five and six and is summarized also in verses nine and 10. It is this, that we are limited, but he, Christ, is eternal. He's an eternal priest. Verses five and six turn the attention, uh, our attention back to Jesus, who is this great high priest that we were introduced to last week at the end of chapter four, continued to be uh, to learn uh, about this week. He is a priest who makes propitiation for sins, meaning he brings forgiveness for the sins of mankind and who brings believers, brings uh, people who are trusting in him into the presence of God. Aaron, the brother of Moses, was the first high priest, and he was so by God's calling. He didn't make himself a high priest. And every high priest afterward, before things got kind of perverted and uh, polluted towards the beginning of the first century by those who were buying their way into the high priesthood, every other priest uh, was a high priest because he was in the line of Aaron. He was a son of 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 Aaron. In, Psalm, uh, in, in Hebrews chapter 5, verse Five, we get a reminder that Jesus is not like one of these who buys his way into the priesthood, but one who is called by God as a priest. Verse 5 says, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And here we get back into this uh, stream of the author of Hebrews citing lots of places from the Old Testament. He's going to continue to do it throughout the rest of his letter. But here in uh, chapter 5, he is citing from Psalm 2, verse 7, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Uh, this passage, this verse is interesting because in the context of Psalm 2 verse 7, it doesn't speak of the Son of God being a priest, rather the Son of God as king. This same psalm in the same verse, chapter 2 verse 7, was cited by the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 5. You can go back and look at it later this week. And there in that place, he used it to, to introduce the Son of God's superiority to angels. To none of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And so the author is using this verse here again, Psalm 2, verse 7 in Hebrews 5, to remind us who it is that has called Christ his son. It is God the Father. And further, in verse 6, he cites another psalm to give us a theological reality. So he gives us a reminder of who God is and who Jesus is and the relation between them. But now he, says, he gives a theological reality about the nature of Jesus' priesthood. He cites here in verse 6, as he says in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, Psalm 110, verse 4. Psalm 110 is the author of Hebrews' favorite passage from the Old Testament. He cites Psalm 110 four different times in Hebrews, and so we're going to see it again uh, even over the next few weeks. 
Here he's making the point from the Old Testament about Jesus that Jesus' priesthood is a different kind of priesthood than Aaron's priesthood. Aaron, the brother of Moses, was a Levitical priest. He was of the tribe of Levi, and he served as a high priest uh, uh, in the tabernacle, and his descendants would in the temple thereafter. But Jesus is not an Aaronic high priest. He's a Melchizedekian high priest. That's a fun word to say. Who is this fellow Melchizedek, and what is his relation to the priesthood of Jesus? Well, Melchizedek is um, a bit of a mysterious figure in Scripture. He only appears personally one place in all of Scripture, and that's in Genesis chapter 14. Uh, Last year, at the beginning of the year, 2019, we took some time to walk through the life of Abraham in Genesis. And we got to Genesis chapter 14, and Abraham had just finished defeating some rival kings in battle. And on his way back to uh, his dwelling place, he runs into this guy in in this city called Salem, this man who is called the king of Salem and priest of the Most High God, this man named Melchizedek. And Melchizedek blesses Abram there in the middle of the desert. It's the only time Melchizedek appears personally in all of Scripture. He appears again in Psalm 110, and then he appears over the course of a couple of chapters here in Hebrews. His name itself means king of righteousness. He is both a king and a priest. Aaron, the first great high priest, was never a king, only a priest. And there were kings in Israel, David, Saul, Solomon, so on, but none of them were ever priests. So there were often priests who were not kings, there were often kings who were not priests, but there never was anyone who was at the same time both priest and king, except for this Melchizedek, who isn't even a part of the people of Israel. Why is the author of Hebrews introducing us to this mysterious Old Testament figure and saying that Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek? Well, it is to demonstrate that Jesus is an other orderly priest. He's a priest in the order, after the pattern, in the likeness of Melchizedek. Melchizedek, who was this priest king in the middle of uh, this city, who ruled over the city called Salem, is unlike any other priest in the people of Israel. Jesus, who is the divine Son of God, King of kings, Lord of lords, and great high priest of our confession, of our faith, is a different priest than that of Aaron. He is a king priest, and he is a priest forever, declared so by God. He's an eternal priest. He is an eternal priest because he is the very Son of God. He's the creator of the universe, as the author of Hebrews says in chapter 1. He is co-equal and co-eternal with God the Father. And so whatever Jesus does, whatever office he holds, he will do it eternally because he is eternal, whether it be king, whether it be priest, savior, whatever it is, Jesus is that forever. So as a permanent priest, as an eternal priest, he is then the mediator. He's the go-between. He's the one that gives out a salvation that is, because he is eternal, a salvation that is eternal as well. A salvation that he secures by sacrifice. Not sacrifice of animals for the sins of man, but sacrifice of his own righteous, sinless life on behalf of sinners. We are limited. We will never be eternal like Jesus is. We had a beginning. Our lives will have an end, but Christ's Christ has no beginning. He exists in eternity past, and he will exist for eternity future. And so then, if Christ, our eternal high priest, has brought you to God, dear friend, rejoice in the fact that your salvation is eternally secure. If Jesus is an eternal priest, and he's the priest of an eternal salvation, 
then that means your salvation, your forgiveness of sins will never run out. It will never run dry. It will never grow old or expire. The doctrine that is often taught, uh, a title called the, the security of the believer, the doctrine of the security of the believer. Sometimes we in Baptist circles, uh, we call it once saved, always saved. That might be um, a, a little bit uh, a little bit lighter way of saying the doctrine of eternal security or security of the believer, but the security of the believer, our salvation never going away, is grounded in this reality that Jesus is an eternal priest. The reason, dear friend, that you can place your faith in Christ Jesus at the age of six and walk faithfully with him each day the rest of your life and know that you know that you know that you are saved is because you don't have to repeat your salvation day by day. Because your salvation has been purchased by an eternal priest. Your salvation has been mediated to you by a God who never fails. This is why we can say we have eternity, or, or excuse me, why we have security in Christ. Because he is a priest forever. Because he never fails to represent us to God. And he never fails to bring us into God's presence. This is an important reality. And it should lead us to rejoice and to worship it should lead us to have great confidence as Christians. The things that we know about Jesus, the things that we know that he has done for us, the life that he has brought us into ought to lead us to live lives of rejoicing and worship. We are weak, but he is strong. We are limited, but he is eternal. And the third fundamental reality, the author of Hebrews uh, reminds us about Jesus, our high priest, is this, that we are rebels, but he is obedient. This comes to us in the last verses, verses uh, 7 through 10. Verse 7 notes for us that the period of Jesus' earthly ministry was served as a priest interceding for others. In the days of his flesh, the author of Hebrews says, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. These loud cries and tears could speak specifically of the, the praying that Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night that he would be betrayed. Father, if there is any other way, make it so, but yet not my will, but yours be done. Could speak also to the prayers of Jesus on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. His words of assurance to the thief on the side who previously was blaspheming him, but then nearing to death, that thief who said, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, you will be with me today in paradise. These loud cries and prayers, supplication to God could speak about the times where Jesus went away by himself to a desolate place to pray. You might be reminded of John 17 and there the high priestly prayer where Jesus prays for his disciples and not only the, the 12 that were close to him, but the many that would come to believe in him and have spiritual life because of their testimony. At any rate, Jesus is praying to his Father, who alone, God in heaven, was able to save him from death. God does save Jesus from death by saving him through death. God the Father does not keep Jesus from suffering for sins. He does not keep him from dying on the cross, but he saves him from death by resurrecting him from the grave three days later after he has made purification for sins. Verse 8 notes for us that even though Jesus is the Son of God, that he still needed to learn obedience to the Father. It is strange to think that Jesus, the Son of God, omniscient, all-knowing, would need to learn things. Here it says he had to learn obedience. And in this sense, obedience to God comes through suffering. Do you see that, verse 8? Although he was a son, 
He learned obedience through what? He suffered. Paul the Apostle says, uh, speaks about this to the church at Philippi in Philippians 2, verse 8, that Christ became obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. There's here an interesting play on words between what Christ learned and what he suffered. In Greek, the two words, learned and suffered, are only different by one letter. They rhyme, they, they look very similar. If you see the two words side by side, you, would want, you might would wonder, if you, don't, if you can't read Greek, what are these words saying or what's the difference between the two? There's an intentional play on, on words there, like our English uh, idiom, no pain, no gain, right? The rhyme goes together without pain, without some suffering. There's no benefit to your body if that has to do with the, you know, going to the gym or to uh, your, your academic uh, uh, advancement related to the time you have to spend in study and research and things like that. No pain, no gain. Christ learned through what he suffered. Learning and suffering coincide. Learning obedience for Jesus and suffering coincide for him. In the case of Jesus, the Son of God, the great high priest, he acquired full knowledge. He learned obedience, full knowledge of submission to the plan of God as he endured death for sins, which was God's intention to save sinful humanity even from the foundation of the world. Jesus is not learning something he did not know before but he is gaining a full experiential knowledge of what it is to be obedient to the will of God to the very end. In verses 9 and 10, we read that Jesus was made perfect, and he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of, there we see our friend from the Old Testament, Melchizedek. The fact that Jesus is mentioned by the author of Hebrews as being made perfect, that seems kind of strange too. Wasn't he already sinless? does not mean that he made moral progress over his life. It doesn't mean that he was once sort of sinful, sort of incomplete, not really what he ought to be, and he grew into that over time. No, it doesn't mean that. Rather, perfect, Jesus becoming perfect, speaks about him becoming complete as a priest. He, he, he fulfilled, he filled out the whole uh, nature of what it meant to be a priest for people. He became a perfect high priest. He became our great high priest by being obedient to the point of death for the sins of those that he would represent to God. That's how Jesus becomes a perfect high priest, by dying for us. And in so doing, as this eternal priest, as a priest forever, he becomes the source, the one who gives a forever kind of salvation to everyone who follows him obediently. He became the source of eternal salvation to whom? To all who obey him, verse 9 says. Friend, this morning, if Christ is your Savior, if Christ is your great high priest, if your faith is in him, the one who died for your sins and rose again, then the obedient Son of God, Jesus, has brought you into the presence of God. If Christ is your priest, he has brought you into the presence of God. Remember what the end of chapter 4, verse 16 said? Let us then, knowing who Christ is, is our great high priest, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace into God's very presence that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. If Jesus is your priest forever, dear friend, he has brought you into the presence of God. If you can confidently approach God in Christ Jesus, you have been given priestly access by virtue of Jesus' priestly work on the cross for you. You have priestly access to God. Think about that a minute. Peter the Apostle writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, he says to the church, borrowing language from Exodus, 
He says of Christians, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. If you have been brought to God by the gracious gift and work of his son, Jesus, our great high priest, you have been made a priest of God with Jesus. I'm going to say that again. I feel like we're all asleep this morning. If, Jesus, if you have been brought by God's gift of his son into his presence because of Christ's death and priestly work on your behalf, you have been made a priest of God. You've been given priestly access to God. Amen. Amen. But as a priest, you are also called to be obedient, even as Jesus, our great high priest, was obedient. Christ was obedient even to the point of death to fulfill, to fill out all of God's plan for salvation. And we are called to be obedient to Jesus as those who follow him in the same way that he was obedient to God. Which means in some sense we can expect, should expect, some suffering in life. If our life is to be made like him, if our, if our thoughts, our desires are to be made like Jesus's, we should expect to suffer some, to endure hardship. But the end result is good. Fundamentals are important. The fundamental truth that the author of Hebrews wants his readers to know is that Jesus is the strong, eternal, obedient priest that we all need. What does this mean for us? Why does this matter? Well, first of all, enjoying salvation and growing in it. Just knowing Christ and maturing as a follower of Jesus comes through obedience to this fundamental figure of our faith, comes with uh, obedience, comes through obedience to Jesus. Understand this and write this down if you need to. We cannot mature as Christians. We cannot grow as followers of Christ until we understand that Jesus alone is the bedrock of our faith. We cannot grow as followers of Jesus unless we understand and know that we know that we know that Jesus is the foundation. He is the fundamental reality of our faith. You know that you cannot learn to read unless you first learn the sounds that individual letters make. You cannot perform calculus unless you first understand basic arithmetic. You cannot execute nuclear fission unless you first understand what the atomic nucleus is. I promise you that will never be something I will pursue. You cannot become a professional baseball player unless you can throw and catch a baseball. Hitting, I think, should be required too, and maybe one day the American League will understand that. But <laughs> fundamentals are absolutely important. We cannot grow on. We, we, we cannot grow into advancement in our faith until we have a firm grasp on the most fundamental truths that never change. And at the foundation of our faith, fundamentally, is this reality that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is our great high priest. And there's a reason that the author of Hebrews is explaining this most important function of Jesus as great high priest to his friends and those, his brothers and sisters in faith in the church. Because this role of Jesus is absolutely fundamental to the reality of salvation. Jesus as great high priest is absolutely fundamental to the reality of eternal life. It's fundamental, fund, fundamentally, my goodness, necessary for the forgiveness of sins and for relationship with God. Apart from the priestly, mediatory work of Jesus in our place, we have no hope for redemption from sin. Christian, we must never forget this. We must never neglect this. 
We must always remind ourselves of this truth and return to it as the bedrock of our faith. There is no getting over this. There is no growing beyond this. It is the foundation that all of our faith must be built upon. Any growth, any maturity as a Christian that does not spring from the truth that Jesus is the strong, eternal, obedient high priest that we all need and can't do without, any growth that comes from any other foundation is cancerous spiritually. It is pointless and it is dangerous. If we are to grow as Christians, we must grow up from the foundation that Jesus is the one who brings us confidently and with priestly access to God. Fundamentals, brothers and sisters, are essential. And the fundamental foundation and bedrock of our faith is that Jesus Christ is the strong, eternal, obedient mediator between us and God that we all need. And praise God, we have. Dear friend, are you here today burdened by your inability to feel near to God? Like you cannot access Him. Like God is far from you and inaccessible. Are you burdened by your inability to approach Him? To feel that and to know that you've been forgiven of sin and to know the peace of knowing God? Then come to Jesus, your strong, eternal, obedient priest. Know Him today. Give yourself in faith to Christ. He is what you need. He will bring you to God. Give your life and faith and obedience to him and enjoy all the blessings of priestly access to God because of the fundamental reality that Jesus is our strong, eternal, and obedient priest, him and no, one, no other. Fundamentals are essential. Let us not think we can grow beyond them. Let's pray together.